0: Psalm number 119, Jeff has announced that, and we're certainly excited to mark that. In fact, isn't it a blessed opportunity to assemble and to gather, even as I think Brother Glenn mentioned earlier this afternoon, the blessedness of those passages of Scripture that he brought to our attention, the appreciation to be able to praise God in the way we are tonight. As always, we're certainly honored that God has allowed us the privilege of doing so, and we trust that our service tonight can be an encouragement and assist all of us this week to perhaps be stronger in our faithfulness and perhaps even stronger in our service to the God of heaven. For several Sunday evenings now, we have given some appreciation to a series of lessons, really, touching knowing God. We've learned as a part of that series, matters such as the name of God. We studied about Yahweh. And in addition, we cast a spotlight upon His omnipotence, His omniscience, and His omnipresence. That was last Sunday evening, in fact. Tonight, I thought that we would take another interesting look at another feature and another aspect of that as we give some thought to His judging. We know that, of course, the perfectness of His judgment is so far greater and so far grander than what might be the opinions that you or I might consider or share. And so tonight, why don't we study the judging of God? That is to say, what shall occur in respect to the judgment? That is a topic, and it is really a grand topic on so many levels. Our focus will be necessarily somewhat restricted. Here are some initial thoughts, though, motivating us in the direction I would invite us to move this evening. Look at these introductory thoughts, if you will. We all understand that our life in the flesh is but a very, very small portion of that grand eternity that shall be the existence of you and me. We know that though the time of our death may well come if the Lord delays His coming, we know very well that we shall go on existing. It's just in a realm beyond this fleshly one. Notice some of these thoughts. You and I know very well that when we consider the whole notion of eternity, the Bible has statements like these. In Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And you may notice that the word eternal salvation is there utilized in every one of us. Look forward to that sweet occasion of judgment. Jeff led us to sing about it a moment ago. We look forward to this day in which we shall be able to hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Think about the eternality of it in a place like heaven. In 1 John 2 verse 25 we read, This is the promise which He hath promised us, even eternal life. Don't you and I look forward to eternal life? A life of sweetness, a life without the encumbrances of the pain and the disturbances that so often plague us here. You'll notice that eternity, of course, brings us to the Bible's revelation. There's only one of two possible abodes for each and every one of us. One of them is the grand place called heaven. It is the very place where the throne of God is, according to Psalm 11, verse 4. Isn't it amazing to think about actually dwelling for eternity in the very presence of the One who made us, the One who in fact orchestrated all the affairs to send His Son so that you and I might be saved if we but obey Him. Not only that, in Acts 1 verse 11, this was the very same place to which upon His ascension Jesus went back to. Those angelic visitors that watched our Lord ascend back into glory, they said, the same Jesus that you've seen going to heaven... Note the wording, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. As he revisited or went back to that place of heaven, notice these other verses. In Acts chapter 7 verse 55, it was there Stephen, as they were in fact stoning him to death, he was able of course to look upward and see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Finally in the Revelation, in Revelation 21 as well as Revelation 22, There's a description somewhat of a beautiful place, no doubt. We see it orchestrated with various foundations of the finest and most precious gemstones available of the time. We see a place that is described with a street of gold. Water is fully abundant as if it's able to provide the thoroughness of quenching any possible desire. Maybe in light of all those things, contrast it to this one. What about that other Place of eternal abode for those that are the disobedient, for those that are the unfaithful. You'll notice it's called Gehenna, it's called Hell in the King James translation, and it's a place that's so awful that you and I, of course, readily recognize that Jesus had the, the wisdom to share with you and me what some of its features were going to be. I've only chosen a few verses. Jesus said it's prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. We've learned in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and following the fact of how urgent it is to conduct our life so that we don't go there. And finally, in Revelation 19 and 20, there as the Bible nears its conclusion, yet one last time we have a statement that the dragon is there, the false prophets are there. And not only that, those who choose to follow that which is false are also cast into this lake, burning with brimstone and fire. It is a very overwhelming scene, isn't it? It reminds us of the reality of that place. And now, of course, the obvious question for you and for me is the appreciation of which one shall be mine and which one shall be yours. God allows us to make the determination, doesn't He? However, as you come to the bottom of that slide, now this question. As we have now at least appreciated this judgment that will be characteristic of what each one of us will experience, what about that then which is meted out on the judgment day? We realize those that are wicked, we know what their fate will be. And those that are faithful, we know what their fate will be. But now this question, are there degrees of punishment in hell... And are there degrees of reward in heaven? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? And if so, what does it say? That shall be, in fact, the remainder of our lesson tonight. As we build it, first of all, let us look on the heaven side of things for just a moment. As you and I search the blessed scriptures, again, our particular question of interest for the evening is, in those passages that speak about the nature of the saved, What does it say about the judgment that they shall experience and the sentence that they will receive? Well, let's begin by appreciating the following. In Romans 14, verse number 12, nestled there in that 14th chapter of the Roman letter, Paul, in the midst of a discussion relating to the individual responsibility of the Christian, he said, "...so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God." May I invite you to note the pronoun that was used. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself. You and I will be judged on an individual basis. We will on that occasion and at that day, we will in fact stand, if you please, before the judgment bar of the august presence of the awesome God of heaven. And there, He will judge me and you. And He will do so using obviously the standard of the Word of God but perhaps there's more to be asked. Knowing that he'll use this standard brings us to note this statement found a number of times in the Word of God. I've put it, you'll notice, both in italics as well as in quotation marks. The judgment on a number of occasions is said to be according to his works, in other places, according to his deeds. The first reference, it seems, that we find is Proverbs 24:12. Even in the whole Testament, it seems that the wisdom of Solomon pointed out this interesting observation, namely that the judgment will be according to his works. Keeping that thought in mind, note the next one. In Matthew 16:27, the very text that was read just a moment ago in our hearing, I'd like to invite you to revisit that one. Matthew 16, verse number 27, Jesus, making these comments, said it like this, For the Son of Man, we know that's a reference to Himself, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. You may notice again the phrase, according to His works, but there it's directly attached to that verb, reward. He shall reward every man but you'll notice it's in accordance to something. As you keep that thought in mind with me, note the next one. In Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13, again, very near the conclusion of the Bible, as John was given this panoramic view that incorporated and made use of the features of the judgment, he said, according to their works. By now we're beginning to see a frequent repetition of this phrase, but with it you might note two more. In the Roman letter, Romans 2 verse 6, there it's stated as, "...the judgment will be according to his deeds." And finally, 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 10, "...on that occasion as Paul addressed that church in Corinth, he said to them, "...for all of us shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ." And you'll notice at that point we appreciate that inasmuch as we each shall stand on that occasion, note the individuality of it, but then he goes on to say, "...and shall receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad." One more time we notice this usage of according to. Maybe in light of all those things, we now could question, so what does that phrase literally mean? That phrase, according to, which has occurred in all of those verses, literally in those passages from the original language, means this. It means corresponding to, or just as, or rather, in reference to. Based on that alone, there appears to be a very strong indication that on the day of judgment, that grand judgment of God will be such that even those who are on the blessed reception of the favor of, of obedience that judgment will be according to their works. And so those who have exhibited a grander appreciation relative to that, their reward will be correspondingly, as the word means, finer, richer, grander, if you will, according to His works. When you and I use that phrase in English, we know that when we speak relative to someone and he or she will be rewarded according to their works, Those whose works are greater will have a greater reward, and those whose works, though good or less, their reward won't be quite so great. Maybe we're learning in the midst of this, there appear to be a number of verses that at least are challenging us to appreciate the Lord's teaching on this subject. We have by no means looked at all of them, for let's notice several teachings from the lips of Jesus Himself. What did our Savior have to say about this according to His works, according to His deeds? First of all, in Matthew 10, verses 41 and following, Jesus, in the midst of that discussion, although you and I maybe often have given reflective thought to it, Jesus, of course, made this statement. He referred to those who will receive a prophet's reward, and in exactly the same context, those that will receive a righteous man's reward. Now, both could be construed, of course, as a positive and obedient consideration. A righteous man, a prophet. But notice the Lord distinguished them. There would be those receiving a reward that's described as a prophet's reward. And while, on the other hand, others also highly commended their rewards described differently. The reward that's a righteous man's reward. May I say that as you and I think about this, that's very intriguing, isn't it? But the Lord wasn't by any means finished. Consider some of these other ones, if you would, with me briefly. I'm sure there's a passage to which you've raced already in your mind that 25th chapter of Matthew, in which our Savior, not too far removed from the scene of the cross, that really was pretty close by that time, he used that occasion to teach so profoundly and powerfully that parable you and I have often called the parable of the talents. We remember how it went that there was this gentleman and who, according to the means available, he distributed to his servants and then he went off into a journey. You may remember to one servant he gave five talents, and to another two talents, and to another only one. And yet as that parable developed, Jesus talked about the man who had had the five talents and what did he do? He made use of those talents and by that usage he gained five additional ones. The man who had been given two talents, notice also he put those talents to usage in the the phraseology of the day, he put that money to use and by that he gained two additional talents. And then there was the man that had been given one talent. He didn't put his to use, he buried it, he hid it. And when the master returned, it was time for the reckoning. It was time to make an accounting of what they had done with the money they had been given. The five talent man, he was able to not only offer back the five he'd been given, but the five additional ones that had been earned by his efforts. You may remember the commendation placed upon him in Matthew 25, verses 21 and following. It was to him that that pronouncement of reward was asserted. And you may remember it included a beautiful consideration of reward. The two-talent man also very interestingly commended. Now he too had done a great thing. You may remember, thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. With those thoughts in mind, enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. You may notice in light of those things one final thought. The one-talent man, he gave back only the one talent he'd been given and that wasn't satisfactory. In fact, he was judged very harshly. And you may notice in light of that final sentence, some of these statements of consideration. You may notice that it wasn't expected that all of them would accomplish the same. The two-talent man was finally commended for what he had done, and the reward apparently would be in correspondence to that which was his effort. And by the same token, the same for the five-talent man. Now the one-talent man did nothing. He did not utilize the talent that he'd been given. By principle, that teaches you and me a great deal, doesn't it, about the utility of our skill, the utility of those means God has given us. As we reflect on its teaching concerning the judgment, if the judgment is according to their works, whose works were greater, clearly the answer is evident, isn't it? Now, as you think about that parable of the talents with me, You may notice that there is a separate parable told in Luke 19. It's called the parable of the pounds. And it's not the same parable. It is a completely different one and the context informs us it was taught on a different occasion, likely to a very different group of people. But nonetheless, there are some interesting points of comparison to the point where you and I might readily note the faithfulness of those that were blessed and the varying degree of the reward given them. Now that sounds exactly like degrees of reward for those that are the faithful, doesn't it? As you think about that varying degree of reward, look at the very bottom. I suppose the parable, however, that probably would quickly come to your mind in mind that might offer some points of challenge to this would be that parable taught in Matthew chapter 20. You remember how that one goes. There's a person who owns a vineyard he's looking for workers to work in it so he goes out early in the morning and he finds some who were not busy he sends them off to his vineyard and he promises them to pay them appropriately later in the day he goes and finds some more and tells them to go to the vineyard and they too would be paid rewarded appropriately you notice that continued all throughout the day even until the eleventh hour where he again found some and send them to work and after the day's work was over you remember the dime of reckoning came, and every one of them received the same thing. Even those who had not borne the burden and heat of the day, those who had gone out of the eleventh hour, the five, after five in the afternoon, they received a penny just like the ones in the morning had. Preacher, does that not teach that the same reward is then for everybody regardless? It seems to me the answer has to be No. The reason is, according to the context, that is not what that parable teaches. There is nothing to do with regard to the judgment as it relates to that parable. Notice those to whom that parable was spoken and the lesson that the Lord intended them to appreciate. If you look just prior to it, Jesus was talking to Jews as they appreciated the character of Gentiles. Think of this lesson and how vital it was for them to understand it. When you and I think about the history of the Jewish people, for centuries they had had the Old Testament. They had been schooled in it. They had understood it at the feet of rabbis and others. Others who had been their teachers had instilled within them the firmness and the character of that Old Testament. Now the Gentiles never had that law of Moses. It was never given to them. They were not subject to it in any way. Jesus taught that parable in Matthew chapter 20 to instill within them These who literally have borne beneath the nature of God's strict and rigid commandments for centuries, namely the Jews, they, in terms of their eternal reward, will be no different than those who, more recently beneath these incoming Gentiles, they too will have the same access to the same reward. That's what the Lord taught then. He was not teaching about the distinction to where every person literally, no matter what circumstances, works, or deeds we'll literally have that same appreciation forever. That distinction is vital, isn't it? Inasmuch as so far we seemingly have seen the positive side of it, I'm sure the question now might be asked about the negative side. Are there also indications that those who are condemned, those who are in fact directed into hell forevermore, that there too will be punishment in that place according to their works? That is, those who've been, quote, more evil will have a sorer punishment. And those who've been less evil, as bad as it still is, will have a lesser punishment. Well, let's see. First of all, I would ask you to recollect those passages that you and I noted earlier, according to their works, those apply to these cases just as surely as they did to the others. According to their deeds, according to their works... If that be true, I think we would anticipate that there would be some other verses that might instill within us a deeper understanding of this point. At the bottom of that slide, I would invite us to launch into a looking at some of these passages, consideration of some of these verses. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 15, that's the discussion of a limited commission. Jesus sent these individuals out to preach. Now in this instance, of course, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as they were directed to those that were of Jewish background, we notice the following. A statement is therein made, and I've again put it in both italics and quotation marks. Jesus used the phrase, It will be more tolerable for some than for others, despite the fact that both were lost. What does that indicate? Doesn't that indicate that if it's more tolerable, that means it must be less tolerable, tolerable for some others, and there seems to again be an indication that even on that day of judgment, those that are not found suitable, you'll notice the judgment will be according to their deeds. That statement of more tolerable reappears in a much more noteworthy passage. I've tried to highlight it in Matthew 11 verses 21 and following. I would ask you to notice the Lord's development. This was Jesus speaking. You may recall that there were those who were questioning Him on that occasion, and He made this statement Himself. That was one of those times when they were begging for a sign. They wanted Him to show them a sign so that they could be convicted and convinced. And it was at that very time, He said, there will be no sign except that of the prophet Jonah. But wasn't it true at the same time? And in that context... He made reference to Corazon and Bethsaida. And he commented in regard to those places over against Tyre and Sidon. Jesus very clearly stated it, didn't he? That it will be more tolerable for one group of them than the others, though both rejected him. Some of them in the Old Testament era, of course, Jesus the Christ had not yet come then. They could not have rejected the fullness of the cross and all that went with it, but they rejected God, they rejected his truth. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for them than for these who have rejected me. Doesn't that paint a picture that at the judgment, those who have turned their back on Jesus the Christ, they've ignored the cross, they've paid no attention to the church, they will be judged more harshly because they've neglected a far greater sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats of the Old Testament could never take away sin, but God did make demands of them. But to ignore them is far less serious than to ignore Jesus. It'll be more tolerable the day of judgment for some than for others. I would ask you to notice about Capernaum in Matthew 11 verse 23. Jesus as He taught and preached in the city of Capernaum, that was a city right on the shores of the Lake of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and as Jesus talked, taught to those people, He showed to them the greatness of the love, mercy, and teaching of God. But this fact remains, they did not obey Him. Those in Capernaum so often did not turn their ear in obedient response to Him. Jesus made this statement. He said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for them. When you and I read in Genesis 19, we read about a city given to homosexuality and lasciviousness and lust and a number of other sins including pride and debauchery. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for them than for Capernaum. Why? Because they've had access to the greatest of all, namely me, and they have not obeyed. As you think about all those things with me, doesn't that paint a dramatic individualized picture for the day of judgment? God and His infinite wisdom knows every one of us. And we're going to be judged according to our works. Maybe this final thought. As you give appreciation to this matter concerning Sodom, Matthew 11 verses 23 and following, I've actually put in quotation some of the explicit statements found in a context like that one. This one found in Matthew chapter 12 rather than Mark's version. You'll notice a greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh repented when Jonah preached to them and yet they of Capernaum did not repent when Jesus did and the Lord's point was one greater than Jonah is preaching. One greater than Jonah is the one teaching here and they are neglecting me. It was in that context he said, it will be more tolerable for them, the Ninevites, than for people in Capernaum. As you look at that, consider this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, here's an occasion. I would invite you to look very carefully at the way that the Hebrew writer words this. Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 29. You might notice the development comes really in a very familiar passage beginning in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We have often made use of that in our hearts, encouraging us to always be faithful to the attendance of the services of the body of Christ. And that's a very valid point. But with it, the inspired writer says this: "For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful, I'm sorry, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now please note verse 29. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. Now those are the words of the Hebrew writer of how much sorer punishment. That is to say, these under the law of Moses who in fact were disobedient, he affirms they will be punished. But notice there's a sorer punishment, a worse punishment, a more severe punishment awaiting those who trod underfoot the Son of God. Question, will there then be degrees of punishment? It seems clear, doesn't it? Those degrees of punishment perhaps take us back to maybe the clearest statement that we can find from the lips of Jesus, found in Luke chapter 12. Let me invite you to revisit the last few verses of that chapter, Luke the 12th chapter. And Jesus, as He in fact identifies this description, He points it out to us in a very vivid and somewhat dramatic way. Closing few verses of Luke chapter 12. Now those closing verses will in fact ultimately begin about verse number 46. But I've asked you to appreciate the following. Beginning in verse 37 of that chapter, Jesus speaks about a servant again as well as a master. And as He relates to us, He comments about a servant and his behavior. Let me ask you to notice. Verse number 44 says, "...of a truth I say unto you that He will make Him ruler over all that He hath." But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day, when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. On the one hand, a servant who is faithful will watch with care. He will strive every day to live godly. You'll notice the person who, however, lives carelessly is not looking for the return of the Master. And now these words close it. Verse 47, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So here's an individual who's characterized Jesus saying he's going to be beaten with a lot of stripes. Look at verse 48. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Those are the words of Jesus. That person who due to overt disobedience and rebellion to the way of God and who in fact did things worthy of stripes, he will be beaten with many of them. But the one who in fact behaved and acted perhaps with a reasonably clear conscience but just out of ignorance... That individual, he says on this occasion in verse 48, He that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Jesus said many and He also said few. He made a distinction, didn't He, in the punishment meted out in light of the deeds and actions of those who had committed them and also their level of knowledge concerning it. Let's be quick to say this. I would not want there to be any misunderstanding. Even those who in ignorance did what was wrong, you notice they're still beaten. We would never want to say that a person in ignorance will be saved just because of that reason, for the Bible doesn't teach it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Ignorance won't save. Though some might think ignorance is bliss, it is not. But we notice on this occasion that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Peter highlighted that, didn't he, as well in 2 Peter chapter 2. You remember on that occasion how that Peter, in that inspired presentation, he pointed out that those who were entangled again in the things that were evil and overcome by them, he says, you'll notice they once were saved, but now again they've acted in a way to become lost. He said it was better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it to turn aside from it. That points out that an individual who has never obeyed the gospel is a bit of a different situation than one who has known it, but then turned aside from it. Both are lost, but one of them, notice, is more severe, for he's neglected the very Son of God. He's turned his back on the one that died for him. When you and I think about all these features, no wonder we thus conclude If judgment first begins at the house of God, what shall the end of them be which have never obeyed the gospel? My friend, it's a serious business to think about the judgment, isn't it? Your life and mine, we're going to be judged individually. And one of the things we've learned tonight are these thoughts of conclusion. May we quickly say this. Those who have obeyed, Those who on that final occasion will in fact be granted the opportunity to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Whether you've been one of the two talents or one of the five talent people, if you've been judged faithful, heaven is going to be beautiful. It'll be marvelous. It'll be exquisite beyond perhaps anything in this flesh we can ever fully comprehend. Those degrees of reward, might we say, I'll be happy with the lowest station in heaven myself. But may I also say on the other side of that coin, those who are judged unfaithful, those who are judged to be disobedient, we know their final fate shall all be this place called Gehenna, this place recognized in the Bible as hell. Its various elements or its various stages, all of them are horrible. And I wouldn't want even the least severe of the group. Tonight the issue and the question's ours. There are degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. Make sure your station and mine are the highest in heaven we can possibly attain, given the measure of the talents with which we've been blessed. May we strive to be faithful. May we always earnestly give our gifts into service in His kingdom, First Peter 4, verse 10. Tonight, what about your life and mine? Have you and I been faithful over a few things? If so, we have a great reward us, If you haven't been faithful tonight to the demands and the commission of the Master, I trust that you'll make a quick examination of your heart and life. We are taught to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. 2 Corinthians thirteen five. are you in the faith? If you are, may you live faithfully all throughout the days of your life. But if you aren't, tonight we'd be happy to be of assistance to you in whatever way we could be. But realize we must follow that which is the teaching of the Word of God. And if you've never become a Christian, Jesus Himself has indicated what you must do. You must believe Him to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name audibly in the hearing of witnesses. And you must be baptized. That's His demand. If you are, you then will be, of course, added to the church by Him. And you'll be prompted by all the power of His Word to live faithfully until death. If you err and in a public way, you know others are aware of your mistakes, tonight maybe you want to ask for God's forgiveness and you want to acknowledge to others that you're making a change in heart and life. That's called repentance. If we could pray to God on your behalf tonight, let us do it. We'd be happy to. If we could do that tonight, Brother Jeff has chosen a song of encouragement. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing it. But may we look forward to that day of judgment, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Revelation 22, verses 18 and following. And if we could help you prepare for that day, why not come even now while together we stand and sing.